Bridget Stomberg. And I'm Lisa DeSimone. And this is Taxes for the Masses. Today's episode is on tax treatment of workers in the gig economy. The gig economy consists of individuals who perform temporary on-demand work on a contract basis. Often this work is through a digital platform. Gig workers are often considered independent contractors or freelance workers instead of employees. Although being a gig worker has potential upsides, including independence, flexibility, and job variety, it can add complexity to an individual's taxes. In this episode, we discuss the tax implications of the gig economy for workers, companies, and the government. Hello, Lisa. Hello, B. So today we are talking about the gig economy, which is another one of those topics that we both truly appreciate when trying to teach taxes to undergraduate students or to get non-tax nerds thinking about tax issues. Absolutely. We've talked before about how helpful it can be to stimulate interest in taxes and discussion about tax policy when the issue at hand is super familiar to the people that you're talking to. Yep. And at this point, it's probably safe to say we've all participated in the gig economy, either as the buyer or the seller of a good or service. Absolutely. So prior to the pandemic, it was typically rideshare services like Uber and Lyft that came to mind when thinking about the gig economy. During the pandemic, there was definitely a shift to companies like DoorDash, Uber Eats, and Instacart, one of which we used tonight to bring us food. That is true. So um, I have a really stupid question. I doubt it. Why do they call it the gig economy? I, I've never understood that. Like, you know, I, I get that it's, they use like these digital platforms, but like somebody delivering us food doesn't have a whole lot to do with gigabytes. I think that is correct. And I think it's gig as in, hey, I booked a gig for our swing band at the club tonight, Johnny. Not gig as in gigabyte, you tech nerd. Okay. I, I told you it was a very stupid question. No. That, that that makes a ton of sense. All right. Thank, I win. Thank you for explaining that to me. And I, and I like your swing time uh, uh, accent. Yeah, see? <laughs> Taxes, see? The reach of the gig economy and therefore the number of gig workers is growing. A 2020 report by Intuit estimated that 25 to 30% of the U.S. workforce participates in the gig economy and that 80% of large corporations plan to increase their use of gig workers in the near future. Another study by MasterCard estimated the global gig economy to have generated over $200 billion of gross revenue in 2019. And that number is expected to increase by 17% by 2023. What's more, the study predicts that the U.S. may have more gig workers than non-gig workers by 2027. Wow. The gig economy is large, growing, and here to stay. And anytime there are big dollars at stake, there's going to be, you guessed it, tax issues. I think you meant to say there's going to be tax issues, I think. (laughs) So today we're going to review those tax issues of the gig economy from three different perspectives, the gig workers themselves, the companies that use their labor, and everyone's favorite, the U.S. government. The big G. Let's dive in and start with tax issues from the workers' side of things. Big picture question, are things easier or are they more challenging from a tax perspective for gig workers? Well, as with all things taxes, my stock answer is, it depends. Helpful. I do what I can. It depends, but I think we can get pretty comfortable pretty quickly with the idea that it is more complicated on average to be a gig worker. Super. 
To understand why we need to dive into a fundamental distinction in the tax universe, we need a better name. Like there's the, it's the metaverse. The taxiverse. The taxiverse. Mm, sounds like taxis. I was going to say taxidermy. <laughs> also not something we want to be involved with. We'll work on it. So the fundamental distinction in the tax universe that drives so many income and employment tax issues, and that is whether a worker is classified as an employee or as an independent contractor. That's right. So first, let's talk about some similarities between these two categories of workers. Yes, let's. Regardless of whether a worker is an independent contractor or an employee, they must report all of their income to the IRS. So if I earn $1,000 doing a job as an independent contractor or as an employee, either way, I have to report $1,000 of gross income in both scenarios on my tax return. And that makes sense because typically we don't want tax consequences to vary too much based on a classification scheme that could feel somewhat arbitrary. So what other similarities are there between employees and independent contractors? Um, oh, I'm sorry. Did you not hear me? No, um, I, I, I heard you. Okay. So I'm looking for similarities uh -huh. between workers mm -hmm. and independent contractors. They're people. <laughs> Now who's being unhelpful? I can't always let you be the obstinate one. <laughs> so when I was in kindergarten, yes, I'm going to just reveal the, the secret to my entire personality here. We had to go to school dressed up as an adjective. Okay. And then you had to be the letter of the adjective. And my aunt, because she just had to over involve herself in yes. everything, sent me to school dressed up as obstinate O. Yes. Yes. I need a picture of this. It was, yeah, you got it. You're looking at it right here. <laughs> You're right. You're right. I've seen that picture for the last 13 years. Yes. Anyway. All right. So I guess we are on to the dissimilarities, yep. which skew toward more complex taxes for independent contractors. Okay. Number one, independent contractors get to deduct expenses against their income, whereas, mm -hmm. whereas employees do not. So back to Lisa's example, if I earn $1,000 doing a job as an independent contractor and I spend $150 to complete the job, my taxable income is only $850. Okay. But as an employee, I cannot deduct unreimbursed business expenses. Rude. The idea is that my employer should provide me with everything I need to do my job, but we all know that sometimes that don't happen. It don't. And although deductions sound like a good thing, and they probably are. Yes. All else equal, deductions save you tax, but they also add complexity in terms of understanding what types of expenditures are deductible and in what amount, because not every dollar you spend related to your work is deductible. That would be too easy. Number two, independent contractors are responsible for making quarterly estimated income tax payments, whereas employers do this for their employees automatically. As we've talked about before, when you get a paycheck from your employer, they withhold a portion of your pay and remit it directly to the treasury as a prepayment towards your income tax liability for the year. Independent contractors also have to remit these payments, but they don't have an employer to do that for them. Nope. They got to do it on their own. That means more paperwork to fill out, which means more complexity. Number three. Independent contractors are responsible for paying 100% of their employment taxes whereas employees get to split this financial obligation with their employers. Now, for those of you who watch Friends, this ding, might, ding. and who doesn't, right? this might bring to mind the episode where Rachel gets her first paycheck and asks, who is FICA and why is he getting all my money? I remember that. 
was a good one. It was. If Rachel was an employee at Central Park, she was actually lucking out and Mr. FICA was taking only half his cut from her and half from Gunther. Oh, poor Gunther. He wasn't taking half. I mean, Central Park was taking half. So do you remember the episode? I don't remember what was happening, but someone asked, he, someone wanted a favor from him and he mm-hmm. said, tell me what my last name is. I think it was Chandler yeah. called him Gunther Central Park. <laughs> Which is funny coming from Chandler because nobody knew his last name. Yes. Benong, Miss Chanandler, Miss Chanandler Bong. <laughs> All right. So Gunther, Gunther Central Park, same difference. Fair enough. This is possibly the most complex and, dare I say, least well-known aspect of being a gig worker. Mm -hmm. Having your employer withhold and remit employment taxes or FICA on your behalf actually is a substantial benefit for employees because computing these taxes is no small feat. The computation is even more complex for individuals who are both employees and independent contractors on the side, Mm -hmm. which is the case for 68% of gig workers. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Say more. Say more things. There's also some complex interaction between employment taxes and income taxes, in case your head wasn't already about to explode. Oh, it is. And I'm not done just yet. There are also quarterly reporting requirements for these employment taxes. I am tired now. I am too. And the thing is, all of these activities take time, knowledge, and resources to complete we're exhausted and we like thinking about this stuff. We do. It's true. I'm not sure the average gig worker likes thinking about this I stuff. I guarantee you they do not. <laughs> and so you're having to spend a lot of time and money and resources doing something you don't want to do. And truth be told, the burden of these additional compliance requirements probably fall disproportionately hard on lower income individuals. And so to add insult to injury... VITA, which is a program that offers free tax prep services to low-income taxpayers, cannot help with estimated tax payments or employment tax issues because they help with income taxes. Absolutely. Okay, so I think we have at least convinced ourselves that the tax picture is a little bleaker for independent contractors, Mm -hmm. particularly those with lower income who may not be aware of or able to afford help with all of the additional compliance that goes along with that from a tax perspective. Exactly. So now let's shift things a little bit and talk about the distinction from the company's perspective. Okay, so I guess you could say that an independent contractor's tax trash is their company's treasure. I'm intrigued. Continue. Some workers prefer employee status for the reasons we just discussed, like splitting that employment tax obligation with their employer. And so to put on the employer's hat, perhaps not surprisingly, companies tend to prefer the opposite, right? They prefer to have workers classified as independent contractors to shift that employment tax burden onto the worker. Yep. And there are also some non-tax reasons companies prefer to classify workers as independent contractors. For example, some states and federal laws require employers to offer certain benefits like health care and paid sick leave to their employees, but not to their independent contractors. Right. So it's pretty easy to see why workers and companies can be on opposite sides of the fence here. So much so that several groups of workers classified by their companies as independent contractors have sued to have their classification changed to employees. 
Uber settled a case with workers for somewhere between 146 and 170 million dollars. And in 2016, FedEx agreed to pay 240 million to 12,000 drivers related to worker misclassification. And the reason these workers were suing the companies Mm -hmm. is because the company is the party ultimately responsible for classifying its workers. Mm -hmm. And when a misclassification occurs, the company can be liable for the employment taxes that the workers erroneously paid. Oh, snap. That was at least partly the nature of those Uber and FedEx settlements. So, Lisa, Mm -hmm. how does a company decide if a worker is an independent contractor or an employee? Well, like some bad relationships I've been in, it's all about control. The more control, the more likely the worker is an employee. The IRS offers three, quote, common law rules that companies should consider when determining their degree of control over workers. Number one, behavioral control. Does the company control what the worker does and how? Number two, financial control. Does the company control the business aspects of the worker's job? And number three, type of relationship. Does the company provide employee-type benefits like paid vacation or health insurance? And that makes sense. The more you control a business transaction, the more you should be on the hook for the tax consequences. All that I can think of this entire um, episode is I say who, I say when, I say how much. (laughs) I don't think we want to get into pimps as employers, but that's cool. Our next question is why the IRS and Treasury care about the gig economy. Well, one reason that I can think of is to protect the tax base and in doing so to protect tax revenue. Sounds like a good reason. When you are an employee, your employer provides both you and the IRS with a copy of your W-2. And that means that the IRS gets to rely on your employer's third-party reporting to verify that you are correctly reporting and paying tax on all of your wages. Historically, there was not a similar reporting system for independent contractors. That was a huge problem years ago when cash was a more prominent form of payment because it was virtually impossible for the IRS to verify cash payments to self-owned businesses. That creates what is referred to as a shadow economy where income from cash-based legal transactions is underreported and undertaxed, which is illegal. From 2008 to 2010, the Government Accountability Office estimated the gross tax gap in the United States was about $458 billion dollars. $319 billion of that comes from individuals, and $125 million of that is due to this underreported business income. The IRS did not take this line down. Starting in 2012, third-party settlement providers like PayPal and MasterCard were required to report to the IRS amounts received by payees through their services. The initial reporting applied to payees with gross payments during the year in excess of $20,000 and more than 200 individual transactions through that service. But starting for the tax year 2021, the IRS has lowered those thresholds. Okay. Now, third-party settlement providers are required to report to the IRS if gross payments exceed only $600, and that's the threshold regardless of how many transactions there are. Wow, that's a big difference. Huge. But skeptics question how much teeth this new reporting requirement has. Some services like Cash App say they will report only on transactions through business accounts, which means they won't report to the IRS if you run your business through a personal account. And Zelle says it doesn't have to comply with the reporting requirement at all because it is a bank transfer system and therefore does not meet the definition of a payment settlement entity. And I have to give a shout out to the home biz tax lady on YouTube for breaking that down for me. I I now want to watch this video. It's pretty amazing. 
thing is, even if a third-party settlement provider or bank transfer system, as Zelle likes to call itself, mm-hmm. is not legally required to report your income to the IRS, guess what? You still are. And not doing so is tax evasion, my friends. As in illegal. And that is no bueno. No bueno. Okay, so time for the good, the bad, and the ugly of the gig economy. Let's do it. Would you like to start? No, thank you. Okie dokie. So... (laughs) Once again, playing the role of the resident optimist, I'm going to try to pull some good out of this situation. Good luck. The, I mean, the whole idea behind gigs was to give workers a more flexible work environment and not about gigabytes, as, as I have learned. No. And so that they could earn income when it works for them, right? Like outside of time, they might want to spend or have to spend mm-hmm. raising a family, caring for a loved one. Maybe they want to go to school, whatever constraints they have there was supposed to be this great flexibility on the part of the worker. And we know there's a lot of demand for that, right? We talked about growing demand for that even before COVID. And now with COVID, it's even bigger. And a lot of people don't want to have to go back to work nine to five, even though it's maybe possibly getting safer for them to do so. Yes. So flexibility, huge benefit. But the benefit of that flexibility doesn't come without costs, and therein lies the bad. Gig workers don't get all the benefits that regular employees do, and they have to deal with somewhat more complicated tax issues to boot. Agreed. There's no free lunch here. And where I think it really gets ugly is in who tends to bear the cost of those foregone benefits. I could not agree more. And as is becoming a common theme around here, some of the ugly issues are related to inequity. According to Pew Research, Hispanic adults are more likely to engage in gig work. People of color are more likely to be in, quote, non-standard arrangements that are lower paid. So positions like temps, on-call workers, and contract employees versus freelancers, consultants, etc. Right. The new reporting requirements with such a low threshold sure seem like they could target lower income workers, while IRS audit rates for the wealthiest Americans are pretty low. That's a great point. Essentially, when things get more complex, the complexity tends to work in favor of higher wealth income taxpayers and against lower income taxpayers. Yep, it's sad but true. I also think it's a big old ugly mess what's happening in the evolution of the definition of a gig worker. We talked about one set of standards earlier, the IRS set, but um, turns out there's a whole bunch of other jurisdictions at play here, and they are starting to develop their own standards that don't always use the same definition. Mm -hmm. So I'm just going to pick on California here as an example. They're easy to pick on. They are. They really are. Um, They pass a law under which workers are by default employees, and they can only be characterized as gig workers if they provide the same services to multiple businesses through a business entity of their own, meaning they actually have to set up an established business entity, which costs money Mm -hmm. and complexity. And I just think a lot of these standards were intended to like protect the workers and give them that flexibility. But now we've imposed this cost on them that they actually have to set up a business to to get those benefits. I totally agree with that. And it's exactly what you said. Multiple definitions and multiple standards just, again, makes things more complicated, harder to navigate, harder for workers to keep straight. And 
just it's a fact of life. It's a fact of taxes. When things get more complicated and more complex, this is a burden. This is a burden that is predominantly borne by lower income individuals and people of color, which is sad. Let's go drown our sorrows with some bootlegged whiskey down at the swing joint. I thought you were going to say a cold sarsaparilla. That works too. And I'm Bridget Stomper. Be sure to join us.